everybody here today and I pray and hope that you got my message yesterday. Uh, I texted most of you and I said prepare yourself as, and examine your heart as we are going to commemorate and celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. And that's why the message this morning is all about the Lord's Supper. Some of you may not really understand the seriousness of taking the elements of the communion and it's time for us to be refreshed to to understand and to remind ourselves that the lord's supper is a very important ordinance that is commanded by the lord jesus christ for his disciples to always commemorate and actually in the gospels jesus christ said that the lord's supper is a memorial for his death and his resurrection, for the forgiveness of all our sins. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. So he says this in the present tense and in, in, in the form of command. So we need to do this. It doesn't matter how frequently we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but it's important that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we know what would be the manner of celebrating it. Because many people nowadays, especially if you go to other churches, they do the Lord's Supper routinely, every Sunday, or sometimes every time that they meet. There's no wrong thing doing that every, every Sunday, but the problem is that when you do something that is routinely, that becomes like a thing or an event that, go, that wherein you're going through the motions. There's no more uniqueness and special moment in our lives as Christians. But I'm not saying that we cannot celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday or every time that we meet. As long as we understand that the Lord's Supper is a serious event that we celebrate. And that's what we need to do as we examine our hearts and prepare our hearts for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. If you look at the Gospels, especially from the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord's Supper is so important to all Christians, to all the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was addressed five times, actually. Okay? You can see that in Matthew 26, Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29. You can see that in Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 25. You can see that in Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 20 you can see that in first corinthians chapter 10 16 to 22 and also our passage this morning first corinthians 11 17 to 34 and you know when we have our lord's supper when we have our lord's supper we usually we usually um commit our, our ourselves to our lord jesus christ and we use this passage verses 30, 17 to 34 in order to remind ourselves the importance of the Lord's Supper. So before we go into the passage proper, let us bow our heads and commit this time unto the Lord God. Father in heaven, we commit to you our understanding, Lord, our, our hearts and our whole being into knowing more what the Lord's Supper is all about. That is, it's a serious memorial of what the Lord Jesus Christ had done for all of us and what we are supposed to do regarding this event. I pray, Lord, that we will take this as special as it is, O Lord, 
and we make this moment as a way of recommitting our lives to you, expressing again and again our loyalty, our faithfulness, and our love towards you. For you are a great God. You have washed us in your blood. And we know that there is so much power in your blood, the redemption of our sins, the forgiveness. And because of your blood that you have poured upon us, O Lord, you have made us sons and daughters of the living God. So maybe not downplay the importance of this ordinance in our church especially. And we make it a very important event wherein we celebrate and commemorate our Lord's love for all of us. Will you please speak to us, Jesus Christ? May your Holy Spirit convict us of any sinfulness in our hearts and grant us forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Baptist people and some evangelicals in Christian churches we limit the ordinances or the so-called commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ to two ordinances. And it's called an ordinance because it is something that is, has been appointed or ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels for his disciples to do as followers of Christ. And we have only two ordinances that we celebrate. One is baptism. And then second one is the Lord's Supper. We don't celebrate any other ordinances. Some other so-called churches, they have uh, the sacrament of um, penance, which is confession and asking for forgiveness. We have the, we have the sacrament of matrimony, sacrament of um, extreme unction, or anointing of the sick, and so on and so forth. But those are not ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ. There are only two ordinances that we celebrate. And why do we celebrate only two ordinances? There are five important criteria for us to celebrate these two important ordinances. First and foremost, they were prescribed by the Lord. They were prescribed by the Lord. That the Lord himself put it in the Gospels for all his people to commemorate. Secondly, they were proclaimed among the saints. All the saints, all the believers in Christ, those who call themselves children of God, have declared the importance of two, these two things, baptism and uh, Lord's Supper. Thirdly, these two ordinances were practiced by the churches in the Gospels and in the New Testament epistles. They were practiced by the churches, and that's why we practice these ordinances also. So, because you might say, well, it's only this so-and-so church practices, but no, it's in the Bible. They've been practicing baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's why we practice these two ordinances also. Number four, they were participated in only by the saved. What is the requirement for you to be baptized by immersion? You need to be saved first. You need to know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that you have been forgiven of your sins. And after baptism, you can partake of the Lord's Supper. So you cannot partake of the Lord's Supper if you're not saved and if you're not baptized. And I'll, later on in our Lord's Supper um, event, we're going to uh, refresh our minds again. What are some requirements? They are not just our own requirements, but they are requirements from the Bible. Okay? And lastly, 
The two ordinances picture the atoning sacrifice and the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know baptism, right? When you're dug into the water, that represents your death. When you are raised up, you are raised up to the newness of life, to walk in it. And that is our resurrection, the resurrection of also of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord suffered the same thing. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That represents His death on the cross. And later on in our passage this morning, we're going to remind ourselves that we need to proclaim His death and His resurrection until He comes back. Until He comes back. So oh, both these two ordinances, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, are prescribed by the Lord. And they are supposed to be followed by His believers, by His followers. And I believe many of us have undergone baptism and also we are now celebrating the Lord's Supper with all of us. Uh, before we go on to the passage itself, I want this uh, message more of like probably more of a teaching rather than preaching to the heart. Although that, that may bring the same, the same message to all of you. Because the Lord's Supper needs to be understood by many people. There are three different views of the Lord's Supper. Many churches have one of these views. The first one is so-called transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. In the transubstantiation view, this church doing the Lord's Supper believe that, believes that the, the, the bread and then the juice or the wine, whatever you use, they are literally changed into the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, according to them, these elements that we want to partake this morning, when we celebrate them, they are literally being transformed into the flesh, body, and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you don't know that view. That's the view of actually the Roman Catholics. There's another view, transubstantiation. Second one is the consubstantiation. In the constant substantiation, the elements are not changed into the physical body and the blood. But Jesus Christ is in the substance of the bread and the wine or the juice. So what you're saying is that this is not literally the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ is in it. He is present in the body, in the bread, and also the wine or the cup of juice. Again, we don't know that belief because that's illogical. Can the God of the living God of the universe, our Lord and Savior, fit into that bread and cup of juice? No way. He's way bigger than this. And that's what, not, not what the Bible tells us about. And this is the Lutheran position. If you go to a Lutheran church, they're practicing consubstantiation. So what do we know? As, as, as Christians, not only as Baptists, but as Christians, we hold the memorial view. We, we view the bread and the cup as the memorial or a commemoration of the Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross. His sacrificial death on the cross. The atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. When, when I talk about atoning, it means the substitutionary, the substitutionary effect of Jesus Christ's death. Remember, Jesus Christ died on the cross more than 2,000 years ago. 
And if you say to another person nowadays, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And they will ask, how can He forgive me of my sins? How can He give me the gift of eternal life when He died more than 2,000 years ago? That's the big thing. His death on the cross has an effect backward and forward towards that event. Those people who died before Jesus Christ died on the cross and was resurrected, they can be saved through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and His resurrection. And those who died much, much later, for example, in our, in our day and time, if they died during this time, the effect of the Lord Jesus Christ's death 2,000 years ago are still effective until now. Because it, it's affected all throughout the ages, all throughout generations. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ's death and the resurrection is really unique, it's special. It's something that has beneficial effect even towards our future. And that's the memorial view that we hold as Christians. So let's go now to our passage this morning. Uh, first Corinthians 11, we'll start at verse 17. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we need to understand the problems. We'll talk about the problems first. Secondly, the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And then thirdly, how do we prepare for the Lord's Supper? So we'll talk about the problems that the Apostle Paul mentioned in this passage and the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And then how do we prepare ourselves? as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So let's go to verses 17 to 22 first. We must deal with the problems. What are the problems that the Apostle Paul dealt with during the time that he was with the Corinthian believers? So look at verse 17. Now in this, as I declare unto you, I praise you not that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. But for first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. So the first problem that the Apostle Paul says here is that you are so divisive. In this big, mega, Christian, uh, Corinthian church, there's division. People are arguing with one another. And what was the basis of the division? The basis of the division during the time was socioeconomic, the socioeconomic status. There are poor people and there are rich people. And the poor are being segregated from the rich. The rich are just going out or having fellowship with the rich and the poor are fellowshipping with the poor, which is again against the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he said, if you are my disciples, you need to show your love for one another. You need to show your love for one another. So how can we show our love for one another if we segregate the poor from the rich? Or we, we feel that we belong to one group rather than the other. Because of this socioeconomic difference in the Corinthian church, they are arguing with one another. In the modern church, it's not only it's not necessarily the socioeconomic status that has been the problem that caused division, but there's always division happening in the church. 
And in Proverbs chapter 6, in verses 16 to 19, if you read that passage, Proverbs 6, 16 to 19, perhaps we can turn to that. Because I want to show to you that sowing discord or sowing division in the church is something that is an abomination in the eyes of God. Proverbs chapter 6, 16 to 19. Okay, Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. These things that the world hates, they take note. Things that the Lord hates, take note of these things. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. So take note, abomination is something that God despises. Something that God really hates. And we know that if God hates that, we as God's people should hate also these things. So what are these seven things? First, a proud group. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and a heart that is devised wicked imagination, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and take note of the last one. He that soweth discord among brethren. In many churches nowadays, people are making factions, groups. For example, just for example, in our congregation, um, the Asian people will flock together during fellowship, and the North Americans, the Caucasians, will be flocking to the other side. And those who belong, don't belong into the, those two groups will have their own group. So, what do you think would happen if that church is doing that all the time, especially in their fellowship, especially in the Lord's Supper? They're having factions. That would cause division in the church. And again, the Bible says, God hates sowing discord among the brethren. If we consider ourselves as family members, as part of the church family, we don't want discord or division. Of course, we can agree to disagree because all of us are entitled to each other's opinion. We have our own opinion regarding some things in church. But if we know that our opinion will destroy the church as a whole, rather than bring unity into the church, then we need to keep silent. And we need to pray about it. Because remember, our ultimate goal here in the church is not to just to carry out our own interests or to tell people that I want my way, not your way, not the church way, not God's way. If that happens, there will be discord. And that starts the breakdown of a church. I know many churches that have been plagued with so much discord. One group, because sometimes they have two or three pastors, one group will go to the one pastor, one will go to the other pastor, one will go to the, three, the other pastor, because those three pastors are not having a harmonious relationship. They're bickering. So what's, hap what's happening to the church? They will divide. And later on, you know, I, I, know, I really know one of those churches here in Richmond. They divided into two, and then those two divided again into smaller groups, and until now, it's gone. There's no more church. All the other members are scattered all over the lower mainland. Why do I bring this into this topic? Because when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we need to have unity. We have to have oneness of mind and spirit. That's why we, later on we'll see, we need to examine ourselves. If there's someone who offended us or someone that we offended, we need to go to that person and ask forgiveness. 
Because there will be no unity if there will be so much discord and division in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must deal with the divisiveness. Sometimes the divisiveness, as we go to back to 1 Corinthians 11, sometimes the divisiveness, look at verse 19, will be the heresies, the false teachings. So what does the Corinthian church do regarding the heresies? The Bible says we need to deal with the heresies. If there's false teaching in any certain church, we need to talk to that false teacher and instruct him in the truth of God's word. Because otherwise, that false teaching can ruin the whole church. Give you an example. In one church, there is one believer, actually, um, he was a teacher, but he believes that when you are saved and then you fall into sin, you will lose your salvation. That's a false teaching. Because the Bible says, once you are saved, you are always saved. What I'm saying is that when you are truly saved, you can never lose your salvation. If that person is a teacher in the church, and he will always tell people about that kind of teaching, and the pastor, the lead pastor is teaching that you will never lose your salvation, the church people will be confused. And that's dangerous. When there's heresy, when there's false teaching, we need to root that out. We need to remove that false teaching. If that person would not repent of that false teaching, then there's no other way but to let him or her go. If that's his teaching. Because we cannot allow false teachings in any church. That will cause division. There, as I told you a while ago, socioeconomic status may not be a problem, especially in our church, but false teaching could be a problem. Or um, telling other people your own preferences or your opinions and pushing them. I want it this way, even though everybody in the church family says we need to do it this way. Because remember, unity is the rule in the church. Remember Jesus Christ? When he was praying in John chapter 17, he says, I pray that they may be one. Are we doing something in our church to continue to be one? I'm not saying that we're going to be uniform, but we need to be one, united, in our faith in Jesus Christ and in our ways. We follow only one way, and that is Jesus Christ's way. And if we know that there's someone who's probably swaying from the right path, we need to help that fellow to come back to the right path. Because we want to be united in our efforts and in our goal. So divisiveness is a problem. Not only divisiveness, but selfishness is another problem. Look at verses 20 and 22. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in, or despise you the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. So during the time before the Lord's Supper, their tradition is to have the love feast. And the love feast is called the agape feast. 
So before they celebrate the Lord's Supper and partake of the elements, they have their potluck, just like what we're doing next week. And they have potluck. But the problem when they have their potluck, only the rich people were able to bring food and they're eating their own food. While the poor who cannot bring their own food are hungry before the Lord's Supper. So they're marginalizing the poor again. It's again the socioeconomic status of people. So what Paul is saying here is that you are being selfish. Why don't you share your food with the poor people who are not able to bring their own food? Or perhaps much better, just eat in your own houses, in your homes. So that when you gather together for the Lord's Supper, you show your love and unity. Remember, the word fellowship means to share. How can we have fellowship if we don't share what we have with other people? Especially during the potluck time, right? It's not good in the sight of God, especially, and in the sight of some people who are visiting the church. For example, I bring my own food and I said, I'm going to eat all of this. I'm not going to share this with anybody else. Will that show the love of Christ? Of course not. That's a selfish and prideful expression of our being Christian. And we are not supposed to be like that. God hates that. So the rich people, again, they're taking precedence over the poor. And they're not allowing their poor brothers and sisters to partake or share with their food. So divisiveness and selfishness are problems. And we need to pray as a local church that divisiveness and selfishness, selfishness will, be, will not be predominating our fellowships. But instead, there will be unity and there will be love despite the disagreements. Again, we can disagree, and sometimes when we have our church family meeting, there's some disagreements. But when we take a vote, when we pray especially, we are united in one mind. Secondly, we need to understand also and honor the purposes of the Lord's Supper. Now that we have dealt with the problems, we need to know what is the purpose of the Lord's Supper. There is a twofold purpose of the Lord's Supper. Look at verses 23 to 25. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he prayed it and said, Take it, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had stopped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper is a commemoration of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he said in verse 24, Take it, this is my body. He's not saying, You become like a cannibal. We're not cannibals, because people think that we are literally taking the body of Christ. That's why we are not sponsoring the view that the Lord's Supper is about transubstantiation. Just imagine, if we cater to the view that the bread and the cup are literally transformed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ, then we are cannibals. But we are not cannibals, we're not flesh-eating people. 
We are just commemorating what Jesus Christ did on the cross for all of us. Because he said, this do in remembrance of me. The cup that we're going to partake later on is the new covenant. And the new covenant of God or Jesus Christ with all of us is in his blood. Remember in the book of Leviticus, it says, the life is in the blood. That's why we always think about our salvation as blood. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that saves us, that redeems us, that give, has given us forgiveness of all our sins. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are remembering what Jesus Christ did for us. And as I said a while ago, let's make this a special moment. Even though we do it once every month, we make it a special moment. We don't take it lightly. We take the Lord's Supper as serious as possible because we are honoring and commemorating the Lord's death, His sacrificial death for all of us. Not only that, in verse 26, Paul said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till He comes. The word show here means to proclaim. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, you are proclaiming that Jesus Christ has died on the cross. He's not dying all the time, just like what the other religion said, because those people who hold on to the transubstantiation view, they say that Jesus Christ is dying every time that they have the Lord's Supper. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, died once and for all. And what does that mean? He died 2,000 years ago, and when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, he's no longer dying again and again and again and again. He died once, but the benefit and the effect of his death is still lingering on until our very near future. And what we are doing when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, especially in front of the unbelievers that we have, for example, we have some visitors who are not saved yet, they will understand that through the Lord's Supper, we are telling them that the Lord's death is very important in their salvation. So we proclaim that the, through the Lord's Supper, that the Lord's return will be soon. It will be imminent because it says that you do show the Lord's death till He come. Are you ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ? Are you sure? Or are you just saying it because all the other people are saying that Jesus Christ is coming out? We know that He's coming back. That's what the Bible says. And we believe the Word of God. We know that He's going to fulfill His promise. And if you are ready for the second time of Jesus Christ, are you doing your best to invest your life, to invest your abilities, your talents for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ? Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't wait for next year to serve Him. If you know that Jesus Christ is coming back soon, why don't you serve Him now? You can serve Him in so many other areas in your life. There are so many ways that you can proclaim that Jesus Christ is coming back. But what is important is that we tell people that He's coming back soon. Are you ready? And if you are here today, you might say, I'm not sure if I'm ready. Perhaps you are not saved yet. Perhaps you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So what can you do? My advice, the Bible's advice is this. Admit that you are a sinner. 
Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. You cannot save yourself from your sins. You cannot do good works in order to be forgiven. You cannot do anything else except one, to call on the name of the Lord. Because he says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that He was resurrected from the dead. Surrender your life to Him. Tell Him, Lord, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I want to be forgiven of all my sins. I want to be with you and with all other believers, all other children of yours, to be in heaven with you forever and ever. That's what you need to do. And when you do that, the Lord says, you're ready for my second coming. So when we commemorate the Lord's death in verses 23 to 25, we are looking backward. We are looking to our past. Jesus Christ died. When we proclaim the second coming of Jesus Christ, we are looking forward to what's coming in the very near future. Lastly, in verses 27 to 34, and this is also very important, so please pay attention. We must make preparations. So in verse 27 to 32, the Bible says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread, and drink this cup of the Lord, right? the elements are going to share later on, unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So we, there must be a personal examination of ourselves, first and foremost. So what does it mean by Paul saying, when we eat and drink unworthily? How can we become unworthy? Well, in the first place, all of us are unworthy. All of us do not deserve to be saved. That's why the Bible says we are saved by grace. We are not saved by our own merits. We are not saved by our good works. But we are saved by the grace, the goodness, the love, the compassion, and the mercy of God. So how can we be unworthy when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? If there's sin in our life, if we have the sin of divisiveness, the sin of selfishness, the sin of false teachings, and all other kinds of sins, and that's why we need to personally examine ourselves. We don't just go to church on Sunday, to this church building on Sunday, and say, okay, I'll just get that cup, get that bread, and then eat and drink of it. We need to personally examine ourselves. Am I unworthy to partake of the elements because of my sins in the past, these past few weeks, or this past week? You need to confess to the Lord and repent from it, ask forgiveness, and then right there and then, the Lord says, now you are ready to partake of the Lord's Supper. So you don't need to stop yourself from partaking and sharing the elements. As long as you confess your sins, you know that you are unworthy, but you can be worthy in the eyes of Jesus Christ by restoring your relationship with Him. In verse 28 it says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So when we are done examining ourselves, 
and then repenting of our sins, then we are ready. That's what Paul says. Verse 29, For he that eateth and drinketh are worldly, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Drinketh and worldly, but, but what's happening when we partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, if there's sin in our life, we have not confessed, it says here, you are not recognizing the body of Christ. The body of Christ that we're going to partake, figuratively speaking, is holy. You cannot partake something of that is holy if you are unrighteous and unholy before the Lord God because of your sins. Back in the Old Testament, the priests, before they are able to uh, sacrifice the offering, you know what they do? They wash themselves completely. Probably they use that soap from Brother Ronnie. <laughs> but they, continue, they completely clean themselves. Everything from head to toe. There shouldn't be unclean, any unclean part of their body. And then they put on their white robes. I know that we don't do that anymore, but the purpose of this is to show an inner, inner, an inward, a spiritual cleansing that we need to undertake before we partake of the Lord's uh, body, the elements. So what will happen if we don't do that? If we drink it, just, oh, I'll just, it's not, it's not a big deal for me. I'll just take that. Whether I have seen or not, I'll just take it. It's nothing. It's just formality for some people. Verse 30 says, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. When God sees you taking of the elements of the Lord's Supper unworthily, you have sinned in your life and you have not confessed that and repented of your sin, the Bible says God will discipline you. And discipline sometimes takes the manner of sickness. And we don't say that all, all our sicknesses are due to sin in our life, but there are sicknesses that can be brought about by, that can be uh, brought about because of sin in our life, and that's part of God's discipline. And not only that, some people during the time of the Apostle Paul, they are dying because they're partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. They're sinning, they're dividing, they're selfish. And they don't care about how they approach the Lord's Supper. So they were dying. God is disciplining them. Although this may not happen nowadays, but God will discipline us because He hates His own people taking part in this very special event in our life as, as Christians to take it unworthily. He doesn't want us to do that. We need to take the Lord's Supper as special as possible. Now in verse 31, For we, if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. So how do we judge ourselves? We examine ourselves. We tell ourselves, I am a sinner, Lord. I need to confess my sins. I have this sin of divisiveness in my heart. I, I'm not in unity with the body of Christ. I feel that I'm saying that I want to do my way rather than your way. So I confess my sin of divisiveness. I confess my sin of selfishness. 
And I want to be right with you and right with the whole body of Christ. And right there and then, the, the Lord God says, when you are judging yourselves rightly in the eyes of God, then you can partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, secondly, aside from personal examination of ourselves, we need to be also humbly considering other people. So in verses 33 to 34, Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, carry one for another, one another. So wait for one another. Because as I said a while ago, the rich people are eating ahead of the poor. Because the poor didn't bring anything. But the rich brought the, all their own food. And they're eating their own. And when some other people came in a bit later, they don't have food anymore. So they're not able to share in the fellowship. So wait for one another, the apostle Paul says. If any man hunger, let him eat at home, but he come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. It takes humility for people to share with others. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. I pray that this will be our attitude when we get together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only when we have our potluck, but when we ever have any kind of fellowship. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. For look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Be humble. And you show your humility when you consider others more important than your own welfare. Rather than being proud and being selfish, God wants us to be in humble consideration of other people. And that's an expression of love. What did Jesus Christ do for all of us when he died on the cross? What did he say? One of his last few words. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He did not say to the Father, Father, comfort me. I need comfort. I need your hug. I need your embrace. Free me from this crucifixion. He cared about other people. And there's no difference among us. If we follow Jesus Christ, then we need to demonstrate that kind of humble consideration for other people. We need to be selfless rather than selfish. The world that we live in is into selfishness. It's all about me, myself, and I. But God's kingdom is all about others and Jesus Christ. And then me would be the last. I would be the last to consider myself. So we need to look inward in ourselves, examine ourselves, and then we need to look outward. We need to humbly consider other people's interests. So in application, there are two things that I want us to remember. First, we must get right with our fellow believers before we share the Lord's Supper. That's why last uh, yesterday night, I messaged everybody, prepare your hearts. And how do we prepare our hearts if we have offended someone or 
someone offended you, you need to go to the person before you share the Lord's Supper this morning. Because if you have sin in your heart, I don't know what God will do. The Bible says, He might discipline you, He might chasten you. As a loving father, chastens or disciplines his children. So get right with fellow believers. And then you can get right before God also. Secondly, we should not focus so much on ourselves on the, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But focus on what Jesus Christ has done for all of us. His death and resurrection. Remember the purpose? Commemorate His death and proclaim that He's going to return very, very soon. And before we um, sh share the elements with one another, for this Wednesday's Bible study, please, uh, if you want to take a picture of this uh, reflection for discussion, this will be our questions for Wednesday night Bible study. First, how does the regular taking of the Lord's Supper remind you of your continual need for Christ? Secondly, what does the Lord's Supper teach about the unity of the believers? And number three, why was the division among believers at the Lord's Supper so severe in the eyes of Paul? So let us pray first. Father in heaven, we commit to you this moment as we head into the commemoration of the Lord Jesus Christ's death and his soon second coming. I pray, Lord, that you will speak to our hearts, help us, Lord, to examine ourselves, whether there's unconfessed sin in our life. And as we take some moments, Lord, help us, Lord, to think all about the offenses that we made against you and repent from them, ask forgiveness from you and from the brethren that we have offended. Get us ready, Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray.